Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, September 24th, 2015. It's episode 1651 of the Survival Podcast. And it's listener call-in Thursday, right? So we move the Friday show to Thursday, and then we have the expert counsel show on Friday. And uh, we've got everything running, I think, smoothly at this point. Um, I tell you what, though, guys, I could use more calls. I, I really could. I'm at a point now where the call volume has dropped tremendously. Again, probably because there were so many weeks of me skipping these call-in shows. And unfortunately, with the event coming up this next weekend, uh, that's going to happen again. But get your calls into me because you have a really good chance of getting them on the air. I, I can't overstate, though, how important it is that you call from a quiet area. And if you're on a cell phone, you make sure you have a good connection. Because uh, there were several calls today that I just couldn't use because of either noise or like this cutting in and out type thing. And I... I just can't use those calls. I can't clean them up. I, I really can't. Um, so there's probably a couple calls that would have got on today if, if they had not had that problem, just kind of to point that out. In fact, and I'll reiterate this for those of you that skipped the introduction section uh, somewhere during the show today, but I'd like to do my next call-in show uh, on a specific subject. And I don't think we talk about firearms enough on the Survival Podcast, so I want your gun questions. 866-65-THINK-866. 65-T-H-I-N-K, send any and all of your, call in any and all of your gun questions, uh, and uh, I'll try to do not this Friday coming, or this Thursday coming up, because we'll be in the middle of an event, but the next Thursday of the next week, a call-in show all with gun questions, I'll get 10 good gun questions, uh, anything from hunting guns to tactical guns to carry guns, you name it, try to, you know, ballistics questions, reloading questions, anything that you want to know about the world of firearms. Let's stick to the guns themselves, though. Let's not talk about, you know, carry holsters and stuff like that. That's great stuff for Brian Black over at ITS Tactical. Uh, but the guns themselves and the ammunition and the ballistics and reloading. Let's try to do one of those. I think it'd be cool, and maybe we'll start trying to do theme shows for the call-in shows. Like if I give you guys an idea, you know, maybe it'll precipitate more questions. And we'll see if that works out. If it does, great. If not... I'll use what I have. Anyway, uh, before we get to your calls today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time. When we vetted them for the sponsorship program, we checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. 
uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontala saying to me, Hey, Jack, we love what you're doing. We want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show. And I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what, just just stick with us. And when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later, it was February of the next year, that we launched the MSB. And we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I call them the original Survival Podcast sponsor, because they were first, and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original Survival Podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of My Support Brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. Next up, let me remind you about the Member Support Brigade. If you love this show, you like the work we do, you want to support it, you want it to always be here, and you think it's worth 20 cents an episode, join the Member Support Brigade. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, and you can find out how to sign up there. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or first responder, like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, all of you guys qualify for a service discount. Uh, just email me before you join, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put uh, TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll get you the discount code back. Everybody else, it's still a great deal. It really is. The MSB pays for itself. I hear from people every day telling me how excited they are when they start actually doing the math and how much money they save over a year using the MSB and using our supporting vendors for all their really cool things that they provide. Plus, you get every episode of Survival Podcast ever produced, over 1,650 as of today, 1651 in convenient zip files. You get $200 worth of ebooks. You get some video content you can't get anywhere else. It's awesome, and I commit to always making it better, so consider joining today. Next up, the year that was the episode, I have three for you today from Alex Shrugged. I have St. Peter's Flood and the Problem of Global Cooling. Uh, that's a good one for you guys that are all, uh, all up in arms about AGW to take a look at. The Deluge in the Ukraine and the Problem with Winning a War. 
Uh, that's a really interesting one. And I was tempted because of my Ukrainian heritage, right, to to read this one. But then I saw the English Navigation Act and the American Revolution and said, that's the one I've got to read because, boy, there's a lesson in the modern day from this one. Virginia grows a lot of tobacco, but British shipping doesn't have the capacity or efficiency to handle the production. So Virginia tobacco farmers have been turning more and more to Dutch shippers. After all, the Dutch slaver ships are coming in regularly to provide a labor force for tobacco farmers, so they already have a working relationship with the Dutch. Those bastards. Oh, sorry, I meant to say those businessmen. Business can be as much a force for bad as a force for good. Yeah, I agree with that. The Puritans are killjoys of the 17th century. And they are running the English Parliament. So they passed the English Navigation Act. This is the first in a series of law that will limit Virginia and New England shipping options to only one. English shipping now has a monopoly by rule of law. All hail Britannia. The Navigation Act will produce short-term gains for English shipping and long-term consequences for the world. The most strange consequence is that it will create a national identity for the Norwegians as well as for Englishmen living in North America. Uh, I was shocked when I realized this from Alex Shrug, how overreaching the intrusion of the Navigation Act was. It put a lot of pressure not only on Virginia shipping, but shipping everywhere. Norway never really had much of an identity. It shared a crown with Iceland, Sweden, and Denmark for a while, and then just Denmark. But after Great Britain forced them to face the issue of shipping, Norway realized they were being royally screwed by the King of Denmark. The King of Denmark's policies benefited Denmark a lot more often than Norway. In the same way, Englishmen in America resented the sort of legalized corruption, also known as a monopoly, and the Navigation Act set up conditions for the American Revolution. Can you say the Boston Teen Party? I knew that you could. Monopolies don't last long without support of government. When they occur in the modern day, it's usually in the form of safety regulations, standards set by the government, or intrusive paperwork that produces so much overhead that only an established business could absorb the cost, while a small business running on a shoestring budget is overwhelmed by the upfront costs of starting their business. Yeah, we call that fascism, guys. That is a textbook definition of a fascist economy, and that's exactly the, 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 the collusion between big business and government that we have in America today. But I also wanted to uh, give you my take a little bit differently on this. How often do you hear politicians say, we need to bring jobs home to America. We need to prevent these big corporations from doing business overseas to avoid paying taxes. Well, here's a couple ideas. Number one, they're probably doing business in these other markets for more reason than just taxes, but put that on the shelf. We'll come back to it. Uh, like uh, workforces that will show up and do the job. Yeah, because there are so many jobs in America right now left unfilled. They cannot get people to do the work because you have people that are either on assistance, uh, many people just saying the hell with working for someone else and finding their way in their own business, and then people with better jobs and better quality jobs, and then a whole bunch of people that don't really qualify for those jobs that are doing all the crap jobs nobody really, really wants to do, and then you have this whole underpinning of like sub-crap jobs that mostly you know uh, illegal immigrants are doing, like picking lettuce, because I'll tell you what, buddy. Uh, if you're out there, they take our jobs, right? Anybody know where that's from? You want a job picking lettuce? Go show up at a lettuce field. They'll give you a job. They'll give you a job. You probably won't make it a day, though. And that's where we're at with this stratification. But we just keep having you know, politicians say, we need to bring jobs back to America. Well, it's not that I don't want jobs in America. It's not that I don't want our economy strong. It's that that's how you sell the concept of a nationalistic monopoly to the people. We should have those jobs here, not there. Well, that's fine, except that who's going to do the work? 
the American people, Jack, they'll show up if there's good jobs with good benefits. Okay, then you know what all the stuff you buy is going to cost? See, it's called a free market for a reason. The truth is, different nations excel at different things. Different people excel at different things. And if we would just free up everybody and let everybody go after their dreams, we might just have more people finding them. Instead, we try to control that which cannot be controlled. In the end, the desire to do business is impossible to suppress no matter how draconian the government gets. And the more draconian the government gets, the more of an underground market it creates. We talked about that with California this week, and that's the case. And if I needed proof, I don't feel that I do, but if I needed proof, I would simply point to drugs. If you, if you can't stop the transactions of things like heroin and opium and cocaine, how do you think you're going to stop the transactions for low-cost goods made in China? And the answer to both of those is you're not. You're not. It's not going to happen. How many times have you heard politicians tell you we need tougher drug laws to keep drugs out of our schools? Folks, they can't keep drugs out of prison. Do you understand that? When a politician tells you we need these tougher drug laws to keep drugs out of our schools, they're lying to you. Because they can't do it. If you can't keep drugs out of prison, where you have a staff trained to search for them all the time, everybody's under 24-hour guard, everything that goes in and out is searched, and you can't keep drugs out of there, how are you going to keep drugs out of a school? I guess you could run them more like prisons than they already are and reduce the amount of drugs it gets in, but you're not going to keep drugs out of school with law. The way you can keep drugs out of school is to teach kids not to do drugs. Well, they try to do that, Jack, with educational programs. Yeah. Um, the reason most of these educational programs about drugs don't work is they lie And by the time kids are in their teens, they know they're being lied to, so they don't trust anything, even the truth, from us anymore. There's a lesson there, too. The more things change, the more they stay the same. My take by Jack Spearco. All right, so let's get into uh, your main topic today, which is your calls for me. I've got a bunch of them queued up. And uh, before we do, though, I've got to point something out. I missed something yesterday. I guess I was really busy and kind of tied up and had to rush some things, and I've had to do that all week. I, I feel like I am a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest the last few weeks, trying to get ready for uh, this October event. And uh, So I missed something really cool to talk about that happened yesterday, which is the fall equinox, which was September 23rd this year. And um, there's a lot of different things about this that we could look at really quick here, just to kind of make a point. One is in... Uh, many of the pagan faiths, this is a very significant day. And it's one of the things I, I like about the, the philosophy that comes from a lot of the pagan faiths, though I don't share their faiths, obviously. Um, but the connection to the earth and the, the timing and the sequences of the seasons and the harvest, and a lot of mankind's history is embodied there and our ability to successfully get to where we are today. Um, an, another thing is just that it is a marker of time, a huge marker of time for us. This is the first day of fall, which means we are now headed headlong into winter. 
and the first day of winter, you know, we think of winter, Thanksgiving, and kind of Christmas and stuff like that, but the first day of winter is December 21st, I believe, this year. It's usually around the 21st of, of December, and, uh, you know, that, that is the, uh, the winter solstice, which is the shortest day of the year here in the Northern Hemisphere. So we're heading fast into that period of time. This is the, the third quarter of the year, which means... You know, half of the year is gone. Now, it's more than half the year for the year 2015. But if we divide the year into seasons and we go spring, summer, fall, winter, then that half of the year starting in, you know, March is gone. You have two seasons left before we're back to spring. Now, if you really want me to scare you with the passing of time, it's less than 100 days till Christmas. Did you know that? It's less than 100 days. Uh, yesterday was 92 when it officially turned, but it's 91 days right now till Christmas. 91 days. 90 days doesn't sound very long when you're an older person, right? Kids, that's forever. They don't even make a Christmas chain where you take the loop off every day that long. But 91 days, you realize how fast that's coming. You want me to really make you crap? How about this? 62 days till Thanksgiving. 62 days. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Time is moving on. This is why I implore you every day to be working to further liberty in your own life, to learn how to think for yourself at a higher level, and I think we all need to be doing that. Uh, I feel like every day I'm trying to make myself think at a higher level whenever I hear the bullshit come out of society. Um, time is moving, guys. Time is really moving. One more before we take that first call to kind of kick you into high gear with the fact that time is moving on 36 days to halloween 36 days to halloween that means it's probably about six days before it's pumpkin everything everywhere please put your pumpkin crap away i'm tired of it i even like pumpkin stuff but i get to the point where it's just too much makes me think of the meme with the guy i think it's from that uh that dragon miniseries thing uh where he's got his sands on his sword he says brace yourself it's time for pumpkin everything anyway time is ticking on let's go ahead and take your first call Hi, Jack. This is Rob from Central Wisconsin, and I've got a question for you. Do you have any tips or tricks in regards to high water and colder season fishing? Um, details. We've had an unusually wet season up here, and the rivers are tending to stay a little high and a little fast, and the temperatures have remained a little bit cooler than normal, and I'm noticing fishing for panfish or catfish or pretty much anything I can put on the table, I am having almost no luck at all. So if you could give us any tips or tricks, I know you're a, a big-time fisherman, so that would be great, and we appreciate everything you do. Thank you very much. Uh, this one has like a simple answer, but it's not simple, really. Um, and a lot of it has to do with access points, too. A lot of times when you're fishing rivers uh, and streams, and especially rivers, access is an issue, where a lot of times with streams, even if you only have a few places you can access the stream from the bank, it, it's relatively easy to wade and, and either you know in, in shorts and, and tennis shoes or in proper waders or what have you, depending on temperature, season, and conditions. You know, and with that, you easily have a mile by wading a half mile up, half mile down from your access point of conditions that you can evaluate and look for pockets and places where fish will hold. You get into river fishing, especially when you're dealing with high water, and a lot of times it's too deep to wade, and it becomes unsafe to wade, even if it's a river that's normally wadeable. There was a place in uh, the Susquehanna River called Gertie's Rocks, and those of you that uh, fish the Susquehanna may even know that place. It's pretty well known. It was a great place for smallmouth bass in the summer, particularly when the river was a little low because there were these deep holes and depressions, and it was great to wade. 
and you just take an old pair of tennis shoes and a pair of cutoffs and walk out there. But when that water got, you know, we had heavy rains, it would ruin that spot. It wasn't safe to wait anymore. And maybe you could go down to the edge of the river at that spot and, and, and catch some fish, but it was very difficult. There's, there's a couple different problems when you're dealing with this situation with, with moving water. And let me say, first of all, when conditions are good, I prefer fishing moving water to still water. I'd rather fish a stream or a river uh, than a lake just about any day because it takes a little bit more sophistication in a, any sizable lake to locate fish uh, from a standpoint of understanding structure, reading bottom, and, and or just knowing spots or what have you. Where with a river, I can go to a river if the conditions are, are good, which they're not for you now, And I could have never been there before, and I'll stand there and look and go, fish would hold there, fish would hold there, fish would hold there, fish would hold there, there's probably nothing there, this should be fished by casting up and, and retrieving back down, this can be fished with a fan pattern. You can, you can really kind of see by reading the movement of the water, if I was a fish, where would I be? It's hot, this is where there's lots of oxygen uh, being produced by these rapids, and then down in those tailwaters, it's slowed down, so it's a good place to rest, but it's highly oxygen. All kinds of things. This is an inlet, and this inlet is bringing in bait fish, and there's this backswash there, and everything that's coming in off that inlet is backing in. So all those things make fishing in rivers really, to me, preferable. Until you get really fast water, and you throw a line in with a half-inch sinker, and it goes downstream, you know, even with a half-inch of weight on it. Uh, trying to fish artificials becomes almost impossible. Uh, you're doing a retrieve, and the thing's just, like, flailing sideways, and it gets difficult. So what do you do? Well, and this is what I said where it's simple, and it's not so simple. The simple answer, answer is you find where the water isn't fast. That, that's, that's the simple answer. You find there's always some place where there's a backwash, where there's an eddy, where there's a, a weir, and, and it slows the water up before the weir, and then the falls afterwards hit another depression, and that slows the water, uh, and you find the slower water. And, and then you try to pattern the fish based on, well, what, what would they be doing right now? You cold, you, when you cool fish down, they become less active. There, there's just no doubt about that. Now, It can happen the other way. It gets too hot, right? But when you get to a certain point of cool water, fish grow less in cold water, so they have less need of, of food. And fish make a decision almost, almost purely on instinct that is, is an equation, a mathematical equation. If I have to burn more energy to acquire this feed, then it will produce for me calorically. I'm not doing it. And that happens through, you know, it's not like the fish actually is running that math equation in its head, but the fish that don't genetically predispose themselves to that die. They become weak, they become malnourished, and they, beca they become prey of other fish. So over time, that's happened for eons and eons before there were men in fishing poles and hooks. So fish today are pretty much programmed to that. So what we have to then do is figure out what would these fish be eating there that would suit their mood at this time. What are the native things that are in this water for these fish? Now, you mentioned panfish and catfish, though, and, and those usually are a little bit easier to catch. That's why so many of us like to fish for them. Uh, if, it's, if it smells bad and it tastes good to a catfish, it'll probably eat it. We just have to find them. And, you know, bluegills and things like that, perch, are uh, a pretty easy to catch. So I, I can't really give you the answer. I just give you the things to think about, right? And that's what you have to think about. What would these fish be patterning on? Where is the water slower? Where is the water warmer? 
you find slow water that's being hit by western sun. And this time of year, and that would probably be, and this is that's so this is what flips it on its head. That would probably be a terrible place to fish toward the end of summer in the heat with low water. Because the fish don't want to be there. They'd be in deep holes where it's cooler. But right now they're going to go do the exact, if I put you outside and it's 95 degrees out and I have a place with a fan and I have a place with a heat lamp. You're not going to stand under the heat lamp unless when you're one of those annoying pain in the ass people that's always cold, right? And always wants the air conditioner turned, you know, off so that you won't be cold and everybody else is supposed to sweat. Unless you're that person, you're going to go to where the fan is when it's 95 degrees out. If I leave everything alone and I wait and all of a sudden the temperature drops to like 45 degrees and you're outside and you don't have a fire and you don't have a jacket and you're just standing there in a t-shirt and jeans, you're probably going to go stand under the heat lamp and you'll thermoregulate, right? You'll find the spot. Some people that are really cold will be way up underneath it. And some people that are, you know, pretty comfortable in the 40s, they're going to just be at the peripheral edge. And that's what fish do. So we have to think about what's happened to the fish's world. The fish's world has been turned upside down. The water's moving faster. It's hard to get to bait fish. It's colder than I want it to be. I need a slow area where the water's a little bit warmer. So I need a place that gets a lot of sun exposure, specifically western sun. If I find rocks in a deep pool that get hit by the sun, I'm probably going to find fish there in a river right now in your area, especially if it slows down, if the water slows down in that spot. And then I have to start looking at the depth of that area because a lot of times those areas are going to be really deep. That's part of what slows them down. So then, you know, with your panfish, they're going to relate to shallower, skinnier water. So I have to find the places where that water skinnies out because they don't want to be out in that deep water where they're going to get eaten by a walleye or a muskie or whatever from up your way. So the easy answer, though, what did I always do when all my honey holes in the rivers got like this? I fished lakes, ponds. And if specifically, I looked for farm ponds to fish. Smaller bodies of water, where even when you're not familiar with them, if there's only a half acre of water and there's fish in it, there's only so many places those fish can be. If you just keep trying, sooner or later you're going to find them. So that's, that's what I would actually do. It's like the, the, the high water cheat. Look for your ponds. Um, look for your, your, your small ponds, your, your, your small lakes. These are the places to be fishing right now if you can't find fish in the river, either due to the conditions themselves or if it's due to the fact that you just don't have access to the areas that you need to be fishing right now. Check your local fish reports. Talk to people at bait shops. Ask where people are. And this is good general advice all the time. Where are people doing well and what tactics are they using in those places? And then even if you're not going to go completely emulate that, ask yourself why that's working. Hopefully that helps you. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, Brent in Prince Edward Island. A little while ago, you used to have Jack's tip, so I'm going to bring in a, a quick tip here. I have a vacuum sealer VT, or sorry, a V2240, and if you process too much, the sealer gets too hot and the little seal button blinks. What I did was I took a, an ice pack and I ran it along the wire along the bottom to cool it off, and you can just keep processing because I'm going through 110 pounds of pork tonight, and i got to get it in the freezer. Have a good one, man. Thanks. Well, it's a great tip. It's it's something I've never actually run into. Now, our vacuum sealer is a great big giant Cabela's um, manufactured commercial vac sealer. Uh, I don't remember the the length on it, but it's big. And I don't know. Maybe it's because it's so big, and we don't we don't exactly set sprinting records when we're even doing large volumes. So we've never had that problem. But 
if you do, that's a great tip. And I've had other lower end equipment that I've had issues with. And I now thinking back, I wonder if that might be part of why. At least you know, where you get seals and they don't quite seal, and there's no real reason why. And it looks all nicely vacuum sealed, and you set it to the side, and you know, a few minutes later when you go to put everything away, that one's just not sealed right. And then you throw the damn thing away and buy a high end piece of equipment. That's what I did. Uh, I, a few more tips for you, though, on vacuum sealing. Uh, one of my biggest tips for you is, you know, doing things like meatballs and stuff that are pre-cooked. Great idea. Wonderful idea. That way you take them out. You have a, 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 a you know, supply that's for one meal. Or for our case, we did 250 of them for, for lunch. Uh, Dorothy and I, over two weekends, made 250 handmade meatballs. And instead of doing them little, you know, individual pouches, we did them in four big giant pouches. Freeze them first. Freeze them before you vacuum seal them. That way they seal beautifully and they're hard and they don't mush down and whatever. And a lot of things I think you freeze first. Another thing is that a lot of times you want to vacuum seal something, uh, especially if you've cooked it and you're going to vacuum seal it and freeze it so it's pre-cooked, like a brisket or a half a turkey breast or something like that. And they're juicy. And if you go to vacuum seal them, what happens is juice starts coming out of them, and then it runs down to your seal. And if that seal gets wet when the vacuum is at the proper pressure, it won't seal. So a lot of vacuum sealers have what's called a pulse. Mine does, where you can take some air out, some out, and right as you see it's going to get there, well, it's good enough, and you seal it. And if you're not going to be freezing it for six months, it's probably good. You can also pre-freeze those things. And if you pre-freeze those things, the, the, the juices will be solid and they won't come out. That's another way you can do it. And the easiest way to do that is just take it and put it in your vacuum bag that you're going to seal. Okay, Leave it open, set it in the freezer so it won't leak out, wait about an hour, and even though it's not fully frozen, you'll be able to vacuum seal it. It'll be nice and hard. You'll get a great seal. You won't have that juice coming out. If you're just in a hurry, and a lot of times we are, make yourself a vacuum seal bag. Seal it half-assed with the pulse, fold it over, put a pinprick on the top of it, turn it back around and shove it into another bag and seal that, and you'll be able to do it. So those are some ways we've got around kind of the headaches that go with vacuum sealing. I do think, especially for those of you that have a deep freezer, a chest freezer, multiple freezers, whatever, that have freezer space, it is one of the best investments you can make. As a prepper, well, we should be storing 10 goods, Jack. Yes, I understand. But we can store a lot of stuff in a freezer, and Stephen Harris has taught us how to keep our freezer going for two, three, four weeks with not a lot of effort. And unless we have the apocalypse, that's long enough to get through just about most anything that happens. Two, there's certain things that just do better in a freezer than it's other ways of preserving them. And three, you're probably using it anyway. So it makes sense to have your food preserved well. Because nothing sucks more than coming home and taking some steaks or something and putting them in the freezer and forgetting about them and finally digging them out one day and they look freezer dried even though they're not supposed to. And you're like, well, there's, there's 16 bucks down the toilet. The other thing is the convenience aspect. We all live busy lives. If you take, especially we're coming up into the fall, in the fall, we do all kinds of cooking for Thanksgiving and, and what have you. You cook big amounts of food. Doubling what you cook is easy when you're already doing a lot. Taking it and then breaking it into single servings and freezer, uh, uh, cryo-vacuuming it, you know, uh, uh, vacuum sealing it, 
labeling it, freezing it, putting it away means that when all of the come down off the other side of that happens and you're tired and you start going back into regular meals, there's all kinds of stuff put up for you. And then just regularly. I mean, we do it with canning and, and, and uh, vacuum sealing. Uh, once we get through the holidays, Dorothy and I really start making a lot of soups and stocks and stuff like that. We have that electric uh, canner. And, um, you know, we'll make a big pot of, 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 uh, of bone stock or we'll make a big pot of chicken stock or we'll make a big thing of chicken soup. Or we'll make the, uh, the famous squash soup we learned how to make from Sandy Beaton. And, uh, we'll make a, we'll make a double batch. And over the next couple days, you know, we'll kill one half of it and the other half of it will can. And we do a lot of other things that we'll make, you know, we'll make meatballs and stuff like that and do the same thing. We'll eat that. You know, cause what is it, what is the real difference in effort for making, let's say, four pounds of meatballs or one? So we'll make up four pounds and then make three one pound packets to put away. You know, you probably need five pounds of meat to do that. Five and a half, six pounds of meat to end up with four pounds of finished product. Well, then you've got three more meals. And if it's if it's vacuum sealed, it's so much more reliable. So I really recommend it for your preps and your day to day living. And while it's kind of a, a, a hard to do, the higher end machines we've burned up, worn out, and given up on enough cheap ones that we went to a higher end machine. And ever since we have, we've been much happier. With Cabela's, always check. That stuff goes on sale like crazy. This is like a $500 vacuum sealer. And I think we got it for $340, bucks, including the sales tax, if I remember right. Because my wife went and asked, is that one on sale too? And the answer was yes. So with Cabela's, Bass Pro, places like that, always wait for, look for sales. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Joe from Kansas. And uh, I know you're a busy man, so this is just a quick thank you for... Uh Honestly, teaching me, I think, how to think. So I was uh, watching the news this morning at work, and they had the Syrian refugees on there. And I was starting to think how, you know, I felt bad for those people. I wonder if there's anything I could do. And all of a sudden, like some weird condition I've been infected with, I realized, wait a second, what's really going on here? So I got on Wikipedia and started looking at everything, and it's like some crazy disease where every single thing I read on there, I question it. Like, is that really true? Who would want to say that and why? What do these people want? And so after about 10 minutes of reading on Wikipedia and my break being gone, I realized, Jack, you ruined Wikipedia for me. And I think you kind of killed an ignorance in me where I think if I read something in one place, I know what's going on. I guess I kind of resigned to accept that. We probably don't ever really know what's going on unless you personally witness something yourself. But anyways, thank you for teaching me how to think. I mean, if that's your mission with your show, you got a success here for us. Please keep doing what you're doing, Max. It really matters, especially to me and my family. Take care. No, well, I got into your head, didn't I? And I'm very happy about this, and it is a big goal. It is a big goal of the Survival Podcast is to create critical thinking in the audience. I think a lot of times I'll get feedback from you guys that disagrees with me, and I'll basically say this is why I think you're wrong, and people think, well, he's a dick. You know, He doesn't even listen. He doesn't want to hear what anybody else has to say, and it's, it's not the case. If you believe what you're saying, then you should be able to articulately defend it. And if you've heard the same bullshit argument about some kind of hot-button issue for like a thousand times, occasionally you just tell someone to piss off. And I'm sorry about that when I do that, but I have my limits. I'll just be honest with you. But in the end, I love it. I really do. I mean, except when it's the... See, that's one thing you guys got to know. 
every once in a while, you will see me just tell somebody to F the F off in a blog comment or something or Facebook or YouTube. And, and not every time, but I would say 98 times out of 100, okay, to 99, somewhere in that range. When you see that, it is a person who I have a history with of dealing with the same shit. I have a few people that listen to this show with one issue, and they listen. It's almost like they're sitting there going, he's going to say something about global warming today, and I'm going to jump all over it, or he's going to say something about vaccines, and I'm going to jump over it. There's a few issues like that. And no matter what I say, no matter how moderate, no matter how middle of the road, if it's not their absolute freaking extremist view on it, then it's I'm attacked at every level, and a lot of times I just delete all their shit because I'm tired of it. But every once in a while, it's like, you know what, I'm tired of this person. So when you guys see that, please couch that knowledge in there that, that maybe just maybe it's not me being a dick. Maybe it's just, it's just me saying, you know what, buddy, that's the last straw on this. I'm going to ball you out for it. But I love when you question me. I don't care. In fact, I want you to. I do care. I was going to say I don't care, but I do care because it means you're thinking for yourself. I pretty much feel if I don't piss you off once a week, I'm not doing my job. I should at least irk you once a week with something that you don't agree with and you want to prove me wrong on him if you do, great. Um, but definitely, you, you can't just believe something because it's in Wikipedia. You can't just believe something because the news media tells you. You know, and the, this, this refugee thing from Syria, I have some mixed emotions on. Um, on, on some level, you know what, it's not my problem. On another level, it is. Because we're at least partially responsible for what's going on in Syria right now. I mean, had we not done all the things we've done in the last, I don't know, 15 years to make a bad situation worse in the Middle East, there probably wouldn't be a whole crap ton of refugees from Syria trying to get the hell out of there. And then, you know, you see the extremist view on the other side that, oh, this is an invasion. These are all Islamic fundamentalists based, you know, with a desire to take over your country by pretending to be refugees. Look, they're all guys. And that's, that's not true either, but it doesn't mean that there's no risk there. there. There is no doubt that the preponderance of people coming out of that area are one form or another of fundamentalist Islamists. And, you know, Once they're here, they do have an impact on our society, and it, it, it's probably not for the best. Uh, what's his name right now running for president? Ben Carson is under attack because he was asked, is Islam compatible with the Constitution? And he said no. Well, it's not. I mean, anybody that wants to make the case that Islam is compatible with the United States Constitution has lost a brain cell or three. It's absolutely not. You could make a pretty good argument that Judaism and Christianity are not compatible with the Constitution, but modern forms of them are adaptable enough to be so. Okay, and that doesn't mean that there is that there is no modern form of of, of faith in the Islamic religion that doesn't bend and sway to allow to be compatible with the Constitution. But the the fundamentalist Islamics coming out of the Middle East, their, their, their views about governance are not compatible infinity with the United States Constitution. Now, again, I would like to see far less power in government than the Constitution even, even if we were following it, which we're not. But um, if you just start examining Sharia law, 
and the nations that use it as a state religion, it's not compatible with the Constitution. So, uh, the, you know, this guy makes this statement, and the, 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 it's, it, it's all over the place. Oh, my God, do you understand what he said? Well, he said what the majority of Americans believe, and most of the Americans that are so, I can't believe he said that, they agree with him. They just politically uh, speaking do not want to, to go out publicly and say that. Because if the majority of people did think that a person of the Islamic faith belonged in our White House, you'd have a candidate who was openly uh, a member of the, the, the Muslim faith, who would be doing at least a few points, at least, you know, 1%. Jeez, I mean, look who's getting 1%. And there's people out there that you don't even know who they are, and they're still getting 1% in the polls. Well, then there'd be one of those, and there's not. So that's a perfect example of things being twisted and turned to make you think or feel one way or another. And it, it, there's a lot of it going on around. The Pope, right? The, I'm so sick of this. I Every time I turn my TV on, Francis is... And I was watching it today because the wife had the TV on and I was walking through the house on the way back here to the office and he was giving a speech somewhere and he said, and remember the golden rule. And then he said the golden rule and then everybody clapped. Yay! Really? I can I can say the golden rule is everybody gonna clap? I mean, this is a nonsensical thing that we're gonna like applaud because he pointed out something that the majority of people can recite the golden rule, and the golden rule doesn't really apply to other people's stuff. And I don't know. I look at Pope Francis and see his whole coming to America right now as part of the the Bernie Sanders get him elected campaign, really. Uh, I think it's one socialist helping another socialist. I'm sorry. I hope you're Catholic. You're pissed right now, but I'm not the one that appointed your pope. And as a recovering Catholic, I can say whatever I want about my old faith. I mean, in the end, when I see all of this on either side, I see, I see the extremist on one side villainizing the concept of charity and and taking care of others and basically saying it's not my problem. I see the extremist on the other side being really generous with other people's money. Charity is not giving somebody somebody else's shit, right? Like, I got person A, person B, and I'm person C, and person C takes from B and gives to A, right? That, that, that's, that's not charity. It's very easy to be generous with other people's property. But, but most people aren't seeing it that way. They're at one extreme or the other because they're not examining it. And you don't have to agree with my view on it, but please form your own opinion on this stuff. Well, Syrian refugees, the Pope visiting America. Oh, my God. You know, oh, he's in a Fiat. Look at that. See, he's humble, and he's using a fuel-efficient vehicle while 987 SUVs follow him and, and, and precede him. Like that Fiat makes up for all of that. Here's an idea for all these foreign uh, dignitaries coming to America with all these giant motorcades. Use a freaking helicopter because it'll cost less and cause less disruption. Go to where you're going. Be seen, talk, give your speeches, get on a helicopter and go somewhere else. And stop disrupting the lives of Americans and costing us millions and millions of dollars every time you go 27 miles down the street. And stop fabricating that you're somehow humble and you're, you're doing the right thing for the planet or whatever because you're in a fiat when, when there's, there's 900 gas-guzzling, armored-up SUVs surrounding you. See, when you start thinking for yourself, you pay attention to that. This clock kid's another example. Well, they did think, and they, all you people with these memes, like these things that really look like bombs with a, with a watch on it, look at my clock or whatever, you know. Quit being stupid. Quit being stupid. Do I think that either side's being honest about this? No. No. But you know what? The school didn't think it was a bomb. 
No one thought it was a bomb. No one thought it was a bomb, idiots! No one! Do you know how I know that? If you pick up the phone and call a school and say, hey, there's a bomb in your school, the bomb squad comes, the kids are evacuated immediately, everybody runs for cover, the teacher took it away, put it on her desk, then walked down to the, 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 the principal's office or whatever, put it on her desk, and then they sit with it there while they call the police and interrogate the kid. If I gave you something, you looked at it and said, that could be a bomb, are you going to play with it? Or are you going to get the hell away from it? If, it was a, if you thought it was a bomb and it was near your school, wouldn't you evacuate your school? Right? I mean, it makes me think of, there's an old Batman movie. from the Old Batman, right? Old school Batman from the 60s, 70s, where Batman's running around with a bomb with a fuse lit. Like, that's how idiotic this is. Think for yourselves, guys, even if you don't agree with me. Think for your freaking selves. Thank you for that call, sir. Let's take another one. Jack, Richard of Wisconsin, formerly Idaho. I wanted to ask you, as we are now rolling into uh, late September, what you do, and if there is anything you really should be doing, uh, based on a Midwestern temperate, temperate climate and northern Midwestern at that, uh, for prepping your fruit trees, berries, those sorts of things for winter. The background is I have a bunch of different fruit trees, uh, various apples, uh, plums, apricots, pawpaws, um, and, uh, and a few others, just to give you an idea. But is there anything that I could be doing or should be doing to help them live through the winter uh, and give them a better start next spring, or should I just go with a sun method of just kind of let it be as it may? I appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Bye. No, and that's the beauty of fruit trees. There's not a lot to do. If you have trees... Uh, that are marginal or in very exposed soils, you should make sure they have mulch around their roots before winter sets in. Um, winter's, are, you know, your time for pruning. Once your trees are dormant, you prune up your structure for next year that you're looking to see if you're, if you're pruning your trees. Some trees, you know, need to be pruned. And pretty much once you start pruning a tree, you always have to prune a tree. Uh, one way or another. Even when it gets really big, there's still some pruning left to be done. About the only way you'll ever have a tree that doesn't need to be pruned is if it's never pruned ever. And if you're buying a tree in a container or bare root, the nursery already pruned it. So unless you're planting seedlings or doing your own brand new trees, then you're, you're going to have to prune. So you're pruning, you're mulching. That's really about it. If you have trees that are marginal for your area, let's say you're, in your case where you're at, figs aren't marginal, figs are dead. But if you live in a place like I do, like so as you get into winter, you want to make sure you, you, you completely cover your figs, especially till they're established. So it's something I haven't done, and yet they've come back anyway. But they'd probably do a lot better if I got a good frost covering on them or mulched a hill up on them. But if you're planting trees that are right for your climate, then there's not a lot to do. If you're in a climate where you get a lot of ice and your trees are starting to get bigger and you have weak spots, you might want to accelerate uh, your pruning. Where I might sit on my butt here and not even think about pruning until January with my smaller trees. If I have a bigger tree that could end up with a lot of ice on a limb that really needs to come off, I'd rather prune that limb than have nature do it with this big, vulgar, smashing, cracking thing. Um, thinking about things as well, like if you have evergreens around you, And there's any that are overhanging a tree. You know, a lot of times you have evergreens are trees that end up collapsing from the snow, so or the ice because of the weight, and they they pick that up in their 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 boughs. 
So you might want to think about, is there any place where a, an evergreen is a threat uh, to be broken and fall onto some of your other plantings or things like that? But otherwise, there's not a lot to do. Again, the big thing is if you have fresh plantings and your, your cover crop's not been sufficient to make it all the way through, making sure you have a good layer of mulch, especially on trees that are first-year, second-year trees, a good layer of mulch around them to protect the roots from cold. That's, that's probably your biggest thing. Otherwise, rock on, man. Another question. Jack, Craig, uh, username Nanodeck on the forum, long-time listener. I wanted to give you a little bit of insight, I guess, or my thought being a current Vermonter in regards to uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, I just recently got back from visiting some friends in Texas, just outside San Antonio, and FYI, her and my wife and I are considering actually moving to Texas because of a few different reasons, namely which Vermont is a beautiful state, but one of the problems here is because Bernie Sanders and a couple other uh, politicians have been in power in the state for so long that uh, the economic job market stinks. Um, I'm a sys administrator for a company. I, got, I was really lucky getting my job. But, um, you know, it's very difficult to find good employment in this state. The cost of living is extremely high. Taxes on property are extremely high. Property is extremely high. Across the board, it's extremely expensive. We were blown away by Texas. And it's just food for thought because, you know, Bernie is a nice guy. I've met him. Uh, you know, I think he's honest, but quite frankly, uh, I don't want to see him president any more than I'd want to see Hillary president, God forbid. So food for thought, and, uh, yeah, at some point, if we end up getting down there again to visit our friends outside San Antonio, I'd love to take you and Dorothy out for a bite to eat and uh, chat. So thanks, man. Keep up the good work. Well, certainly get in touch with us if you get down here, and, and we try to accommodate as many people as we can. We don't always accommodate every request to visit or whatever because we can't do them all, but we, we try to do a lot. Uh, I will tell you guys, though, a lot of people always say, we'll take you out to eat, we'll take you out to eat, we'll take you out to eat. Um, in most instances, it'll result in, a, in an invitation to come here and, and let us cook for you. I know a lot of people think that they're... Uh, They're being nice when they ask us to go out to eat, but we have a lot of work to do here. And it's easier to put something on the grill uh, than to go out uh, a lot of nights. We try to stay home as much as we can. We, that's why we live here. We love it here. Uh, on, on Vermont and Bernie Sanders, I, I'm not exactly a fan of Bernie Sanders by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't know how much blame you give to a, a senator, a federal senator, for the condition your state's in. Um. Bernie Sanders does not make law in the state of Vermont. Bernie Sanders makes law in the federal Senate for the nation in representation of Vermont. So I think your problems in Vermont are a hell of a lot more to do with your local politicians than your federal senator or your, your, your federal house representatives. Uh, specifically, your, your, your taxes have an awful lot to do, your property taxes with your school boards uh, and your governor and your state legislature. That's where your problem is there. But it is interesting that people would leave a state like Vermont to move to a state like Texas. Because if you made government the same in Vermont as it is in Texas... And if you made the cost of living the same in Vermont as it is in Texas, I would choose Vermont. 
I really would. There's parts of the winter that really start to grate on you, man, up there in northern New England. I, but man, it's so beautiful. It really is. I mean, and to be able, I mean, what you can, you, you think because it's cold and a shorter growing season, I'll still, what you can grow, those hugely long days, all that rain, even when it doesn't rain, you know, Ben, Ben Falk telling me, you understand, sometimes it doesn't rain here for weeks. Yeah, but you get a freaking quarter inch of dew drop every night, man. I, I mean, it is fantastic as a place. But it's it, it's being ruined by this belief that government can fix your problems. And I'm not saying Texas is immune to that. We have way too much damn government here, but it's a degrees thing. You know, I mean, it's a whole lot less. No state income tax. You know, I mean, reasonable, high but reasonable property tax comparative to property values. Now, you go live in a big mansion, you're going to get and go to the the classy school districts or whatever. You're going to get raped here, but you get out in rural communities here, you get reasonable property tax compared to Vermont anyway. The housing you can buy, uh, the cost of living, et cetera, and the job market's great. Why? Because it's a business conducive environment. Um, and you're going to hear the next callers getting the hell out of one place to go to another place too. Just not coming here, going to Florida instead. You know. I mean, this is becoming a real thing where people are starting to leave. Now, what you have to ask yourself is how does a guy like Bernie Sanders get elected year after year after year after year after year after year, or I should say every six years in, in, in Vermont, to the federal Senate? Um, it's because of a few things. One, Bernie Sanders is probably the most honest senator in office today. If there's anybody else in the realm of his level of honesty, it's Rand Paul. And whether and, and Rand is not as honest, I think, as his dad was. But Rand is a pretty honest guy. Whether you agree with either of their politics, and they're diametrically in opposition to each other, they are honest. They're not lying to you. Bernie Sanders is not owned by special interests. He's not. If you look at his, start looking up the net worth of senators that have been in the Senate as long as as, as Bernie, and see what his net worth is. And, and you just look at that alone, and you can tell this guy is not owned by corporate interests. So, as a Vermonter, a, a person says, "Well, the man's honest and, and what have you." And here's the thing: a senator alone can't really mess up the country. It takes a group of senators to mess up the country, right? So Bernie Sanders makes a damn. Better senator. I'm not saying good, but a better senator than he would ever make as a president. Um, what he would do as president, I don't know, because all the shit he's promising, there's not enough money to do it. If you cut the military budget in half, if you tax everybody that, that had a, a net worth over $5 million at, you know, let's say uh, 80% of their income, uh, if you taxed all the, the companies at, at full tax rates, you couldn't pay for a tenth of the shit this guy's promising. So it's mathematically impossible for him to give what he's promising to give, and unlike him, the rest of the Senate and the House are on the dole from the corporate interests, and they're not going to go along with it. So I don't know what he would actually do. I think he'd be pretty incompetent at getting things done. What he could do with executive orders worries me, but that's true of anybody. Uh, but I, I'm not going to hand over the responsibility for how screwed up Vermont is to Bernie Sanders. This is a guy that was the mayor of Burlington from 1981 to 1989. 
and since then has not been part of local politics. And the mayor of Burlington is not responsible for the, the, the entire state of Vermont. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't influence the entire state of Vermont. He, he went into um, the United States House of Representatives in 1991, served there till 2007, at which time he became a senator, an independent senator, that's basically, he, he basically, they, <laughs> They torpedoed the guy, the Democratic Party, and said, this guy's too too whacked out for us, and he ran as an independent one anyway, and he's been in the Senate since 2007. So, I, I mean, you got to be careful who you blame here for the problems the state has. And I don't think Bernie Sanders is responsible for Vermont. I think the mentality that elects a senator like Bernie Sanders is what's wrong with Vermont. And it... it, it It's an interesting socio-dynamic that goes on there, because I talk to people from there. And one thing I, I can say for people about Vermont is they're very environmentally conscious. Everybody, Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. They want to take care of the environment. And when you're surrounded by such beauty, and I wish more of us were, because it makes you realize that, that you're environmentally focused. So if somebody says the right things, you tend to vote for them. And then there's a, stratific there's a very specific stratification in, in Vermont. The middle class is being squeezed right out of the state, The upper class and the lower class are remaining. The upper class takes on this very yuppie-ish, environmentally concerned, carbon credit, nonsensical, uh, Prius-driving, my-own-farts-don't-stink attitude, by and large. And then the lower class, the whole concept of social justice and you should have free college and all of that appeals to them. And then you're talking about a state where there's a college around every corner and everybody's told to go to university and go to college and everybody believes it. And you have, you have huge numbers of college educated people in Vermont living in places where there's no jobs that, that are that were the degrees necessary in all these small towns. What job are you going to get in a small town with a high end degree from a private university? So you have this, this highly educated population with nothing to do with their education except think about how everybody else is wrong. That's, and I know if you're from Vermont and you don't think that way, you're probably pissed at me, but I'm telling you, that's the majority that created the problem that you have. And it's, 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 see, this is what's the problem with government. It's all with the best of intentions. The people that are for destroying the economy to cut CO2 where it won't do jack shit, it really won't, Believe what they're doing. They're not doing it because they're assholes. Like, now, the people behind the carbon credit thing that want to make billions of dollars, they're assholes. The average person that believes us, they're not an asshole. They really believe we need to do this. The average Vermonter that looks at the beauty of the Green Mountains and says we need to preserve this, they're not wrong. They're absolutely right. I love the Green Mountains. I hiked through the Green Mountains. The Green Mountains are a big thing that gave me my brain back, my life back after I came out of the military. I owe part of my, my current soul to the Green Mountains. I get it. But when we turn to government to do this instead of each other to do this, we end up with a disaster. We end up with a beautiful place that the people that really want to protect it can't afford to live. We end up with people building houses who will never be able to afford to buy a house like the one they build. We end up with people teaching in schools where they can't afford to live in the district where the school is. This is the entire Northeast. Vermont is just an epicenter of it, and Bernie Sanders is a symptom 
of that disease. He is not the disease. That's my thoughts by Jack Spierko. On that one, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Josh, previously of Kentucky. After listening to your broadcast and deciding that as a peaceful anarchist, I would never be able to find the true extent of freedom I was looking for in Kentucky, I was able to move to Florida, where I am enjoying a no state sales tax and a very much longer growing environment. Um, I'm very interested in permaculture, and basically the only knowledge that I've got on the subject has been from uh, you and members of the expert council. I was wondering if you could suggest some good literature and um, maybe a good place to start, uh, probably with a smaller area since I um, just got here and having to dwell in an apartment. So uh, any suggestions or feedback you may have, uh, I really appreciate, and uh, keep up the good work, buddy. Thank you for everything you do. Well, before I answer that, I'm going to couch this with the fact that permaculture, as I keep saying, is systems thinking, right? So it's it's not just about growing food. It's about a, a, a troubleshooting uh, scientific-based design that understands the role that humans play in in their social interactions and in ecology, right? And And, and that's what it really is. So that's pretty high-level stuff, and that applies no matter where you live, right? And it applies universally. So, like, one of the best things I think a person can really do is take a PDC to learn that systems level thinking. That said, PDCs are not for everybody. They're really not. They're, they're, they're far more academic than I think most people expect. They expect, like, this two-week dissertation on techniques, right? And if what you want is techniques, then you need to learn about techniques. So let's talk about your environment, uh, your climate, and uh, your current situation. So, first of all, you're in an apartment. Most likely... That, that's very limiting to what you can do, and you're talking about containers and plants. So that's what you do. And you learn about container gardening. So I wouldn't even worry about permaculture. If you want to just start learning how to produce something, find some good books on container gardening. Learn about soil mixes. Learn about management of containers, self-watering containers. Go to YouTube and just type in container gardening and start learning about that technique and start figuring out what does well in containers. Look around your, your, your apartment uh, complex and see what other people are growing. And you might find that there's a lot of container gardening going on. I know when I lived in Florida as a kid, container gardening in the apartment complex I lived in was very, very popular. So that's that's one thing you can do. Um, and then start thinking about, well, where do you want to go from here? Are you going to stay in an apartment? And if you really want to produce your own food, you need access to at least a little bit of land. So you got you got to kind of you got to skin that cat, whether it's through Finding a place that you're going to buy or finding access through community gardens or what have you if you want to do some gardening. If you want to do permaculture, it starts. you start wanting to move really quick into perennials. And in a place like Florida, why wouldn't you? If you're far enough south, I mean, you can grow oranges and stuff like that. Even when I lived in Jacksonville as a kid, a lot of kumquats and satsumas and stuff like that will do well there and make it through their winter just fine. Uh, quite a few people when I was a kid in Jacksonville, uh, the apartment complex I lived in, had a little pot on their on their porches w- with kumquat trees, you just piled in it. And there was a lot of, you know, it was it was a very community oriented apartment complex I lived in, and it, there was a lot of kids, and you started to get to know people, uh, at, and it was huge too. It was a, like a small town apartment complex almost. And I ended up meeting quite a few people through my grandmother who worked for the apartment complex who had those things that would just say, if you want to cut, you know, don't clean the tree off, but you want to take a couple, take a couple. 
And it was cool kind of walking through the complex and go, oh, the tree's really full. I can have two or three of those. Uh, and so, you know, you can work on things like that. See what's going on already there. But trying to find some more space is really what it's all about. For the suburban person, I probably need to just do a show on small-scale production, right, from a perennial and annual standpoint, because we haven't done that in a while. And there's more of you in that environment than are out there putting in 200-foot-long soils. And it's always going to be that way because people generally, you know, have constraints upon how much property they have. And there's there's other reasons I won't get into now that even if you have big property, and it's going to be a big, big part of the workshops we're doing this this year, you're better off starting off really small anyway and getting that done right 100%, which I didn't do, you know, uh, and then moving out. But sheet mulching. I mean, that's, that is, especially in Florida, you get good rain, you got sandy soil, it's very deep, almost no rock, which means if I plant a tree, if it wants to, it can put roots down 18, 20 feet. And there's, there's, there's a lot of places in Florida where the water table's at 8 feet. Period. It just is. It's there. Where my grandfather put in a well at his house in Florida, a guy came and drilled a well with a garden hose and a pipe. And he hit the water table at around seven to eight feet, and he went like another six feet just to make sure before they put the wellhead down. I mean, if you have water that shallow, once you get a tree established, it can reach down there and get what it needs. So then it's, it's about learning about the, the different varieties and things. And that's where you start doing things like just get your hands on as many free catalogs as you can and start researching and learning about different trees and varieties and types. And then just start figuring out what you want and slowly planning it out. And if you sheet mulch, provide a little bit of irrigation and pick the right varieties and, and think about flow, right? Think of, like, learn enough about permaculture to think about flow. Uh, in other words, how you, you don't want to disrupt. We think about when we think about big property, water access structure. So when I look at a property, I'm evaluating it. Where would I put a house? How would I access the house? So that's the structure. And where can water go on that property? And how will water move on that property? And we get down to like a suburban property already has a house on it. We think that doesn't matter anymore. We start designing things. If we put something in the wrong place, we impede our own access to, let's say, the backyard, to the woodshed, whatever. So think about that. As for literature... Probably the best book to start with is Gaia's Garden by Toby Hemingway. Um, that, that is probably the, the best place to start is Gaia's Garden by Toby Hemingway. Um, another book from the co-founder that kind of breaks it down to simpler to understand concepts to get to the systems level thinking is Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability by David Holgram. And just keep in mind, when you read that book, if it starts to sound leftist, that the guy's an anarchist. Um, so it makes some of the political commentary that ends up finding its way through there uh, a lot easier to understand. And then you actually, whether you agree or disagree, you actually understand. Because I was guilty of that for years. Uh, and I mentioned that on yesterday's show. I was guilty of really not liking David Holgren and, and really uh, re resisting... Uh, his amazing contributions to the field because it seemed very politically motivated. When I frame the context with his, his belief that government sucks, it, it, it was so in line, it was hard to believe how resistant I was. 
So if you're going to read that book, I would do it with that knowledge because it's hard to learn from a teacher when you think they're saying one thing and they're saying another, uh, and you resist that which is actually valuable to you. But those are probably the two best books to start out with. But just to get up and running and producing food, you know, Square Foot Gardening uh, by Mel Bartholomew. That's 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 a great book to at least kind of get out of the gate with an annual garden. Um, there's there's a lot of other things you could read. Uh, out there, but I mean, those are the places I would start, and then start to figure out what you really want. But if you're gonna have, you know, a real permaculture installation, you got to have ant land access. Now, that doesn't mean it couldn't be done in an apartment complex with the right mindset. The one thing I loved about growing up in that complex that I talked about, there were pomegranates, uh, there were figs, there were plums, all over the place. Whoever initially landscaped that property put in fruit trees and fruit shrubs. And I remember it was because of an, a, a, kind of an enlightened school teacher that I even became aware of it. One day I went into school and a teacher had, you'd probably get thrown out of school today for doing this, a pomegranate, a big giant red pomegranate, and said, today we're going to learn about a, a type of food you've probably never eaten. It's called a pomegranate. And she had little cups. And in every cup, she put like two or three little pomegranate kernels and handed them out to the class, and we all ate it. And I thought, that was great, and I had never heard of a pomegranate. So I went home, I want a pomegranate. And my parents were like, well, I don't want a pomegranate, blah, blah, whatever, you know. And I'm walking around the apartment complex, and I look at a bush that I never paid attention to before, and there's a pomegranate hanging on it. I'm like, holy crap, these things are all over the place. So then I started paying more attention. All of a sudden, I, I found there were like 20 huge plum trees that came in at different times. And I would go up in the trees with a bucket, and I would pick. I had to climb them to get the plums. They were so big. And I, I'd, I'd pick plums for about three months out of the year as they came out in different times. No one there paid attention. So maybe you could transform an apartment complex. I don't know. I'll tell you one thing. If, you know, I just said that I would, I would take Vermont over Texas climate-wise. I would take Florida over Texas climate-wise. Uh, it is a fantastic climate for permaculture. Absolutely fantastic, and a lot freer of a state than anything in New England. It gets a bit hot, but man, I'll tell you, if you can't grow it in Florida, it either doesn't grow in, in, in the South, or you are doing something wrong. I'm just saying. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Scott from Orange County, California. I just got my uh, CCW. And it's been about 110 out here, and my gun's starting to rust a little bit every day, just, you know, on the, uh, the slide and the barrel. I was wondering, uh, just what product to use, or just, should I just keep cleaning it every day? Let me know. Bye. Well, my answer hasn't changed, but when I first heard that call, that I was screening calls really, really fast, and I was thinking, okay, he's got a rust problem, we can fix that, but, like, why is the heat causing rust? And, duh, because he's carrying, so it's body sweat, which is not just moisture, but salt, so that, you know, now you're carrying. And then this is a great case uh, to be made here for car when a carry gun uh, having a, a different finish, like a parkerized finish versus just a standard blue finish or uh, many of the other finishes that, that are less susceptible to rust than just basic blue uh, in of itself because as human beings we do sweat. And 
you know, if we take a gun and we just wipe it down with basic gun oil and set it in a gun cabinet, um, you could sit there for a year. And if no one touches it and you did a good job, it probably won't rust at all. And if it was taken apart and cleaned really well and, and it's been lubricated and put back together, it won't have any rust anywhere. If you live in really humid environments, you might need a dehumidifier or a desiccant inside your cabinet, but it'll be fine. But if you just take it out and touch it with your fingers, you know to wipe it back down before you put it away. When I was a kid and I was first learning about guns and first being trusted with guns, we had a gun cabinet in the house. That was my thing. I got to clean the guns. That was a, like a privilege. And I remember I used to take the guns out of the cabinet, look at them, think about hunting with them one day, and, and, and wipe them down. And those guns were pristine. And it was easy. You start carrying things, you start touching things, you get sweat. Uh, sweat and salt, and you get rust. So the best lube I've found uh, and coating I've found to keep a gun from rusting, period, infinity, has been frog lube. I'm not going to say there's nothing better, because I don't know if there's nothing better. But of generally available, effective, long-lasting coating, frog loop. And again, I'm not going to say nothing's better, but I will tell you that it will work. So just look up frog, frog lube and start using that. If anybody has any other suggestions for this problem, let me know. If anybody's had any you know, negative results with frog lube, let me know. But I haven't. It is a hell of a lot drier, though hot here. Uh, than it is in certain other climates and what have you. But, I mean, it, it's, it's been as good as anything I've ever used. I'll put it to you that way. So that's my suggestion there. Let's take another one. Jack, this is Nick in southern Indiana. What methods, tactics, and techniques would you employ to win the war against bamboo? The background. While I do understand that bamboo is very useful, at this point, peaceful coexistence is no longer an option. It must be destroyed. It must be vanquished. It must be forcefully returned to the fiery depths of hell from which it came. Nothing short of complete eradication. A full-blown bamboo genocide, if you will, is what's required to remedy my situation. The previous owners of my two-acre homestead foolishly planted bamboo way too close to the house, and I did know prior to purchase that at some point this bamboo was going to have to be dealt with. However, I gravely underestimated my opponent, a cardinal mistake, I know, Alas, numerous bamboo roots and shoots now flourish within the inner sanctity of at least one exterior wall, and astonishing progress through the concrete slab has been made by their relentlessly advancing roots. The perimeter has been breached, Jack. The bamboo apocalypse rages in a theater of operations approximately 5,000 square feet in size, and the bamboo army is at least 5,000 strong and grows significantly with each passing season. The war rages on two fronts, as there are indeed two separate, yet somehow seemingly coordinated, bamboo forest armies advancing towards our house from either side. I've hand-dug hundreds, perhaps thousands, but I am constrained by both budget and time, as is any other man. Reinforcements simply are not coming. Conscription of my neighbors is not a viable option, nor is selling war bonds or raising taxes in a futile attempt to squirrel away enough capital to enlist the assistance of professional mercenaries or heavy equipment, such as a backhoe. Your advice is, as always, sincerely appreciated. Well, I, I, I played that um, for a couple of reasons. One, I think I can help you. And two, I think everybody will go, oh, my God, not that when I give you my solution. And three, it was so creative and, and entertaining that it just had to be on the air. So I'm going to say a word that people are going to go, <gasps> when I say it, Roundup. Roundup kills grass. Bamboo is a grass. This is an application for Roundup. 
and how it gets used is very specific here. The first thing is the, the, the bamboo must be cut to the ground. They must be cut to the ground, period. The area then should have a single application of Roundup applied. That should be done at a time when you're not expecting rain for at least a couple days. Uh, and it should be done in a cool part of the, the, the season. And it should be done in the evening. Not the cutting, but the spraying. You should then monitor the results and spot apply Roundup to the areas where it comes back, where you see any growth, and only spot application should be done until such time as it goes away and doesn't come back. Okay. Now, once that's done, we have used glyphosate. We need to remediate things. Well, the good news, when it's not applied over and over and over again and allowed to be exposed to UV light, it does break down to almost nothing in less than six months. So since we've now scorched the earth, so to speak, okay, we're going to have full-on UV light exposure. The sun's going to hit the ground. If we do this in winter, there's not going to be that much shade, So we'll keep monitoring this through our winter and into our spring, and only when we have a problem of reemergence, spot application of Roundup. Or you can talk to your local nursery and find other herbicides that would do the same thing. As bad as Roundup is, it is less bad than many other herbicides, which is why it was the first choice for doing like a, a genetically modified crop where you could spray it on the crop. It's, it's not as bad in every measurable way as something like 2,4-D. It just isn't, okay? Um, it's not good, but we're also not talking about going in and immediately planting a vegetable garden there. What we then want to do is, once that's been done, we want to find a good annual ground cover. Because eventually it will die. Okay, and we want to put down an annual ground cover, like an annual ryegrass, and we're going to cut it and we're going to remove it. We're going to get rid of it. We're going to put it in a garbage bag, send it off to the dump. Okay, we're, we're, we're going to get it out of there. We're going to remediate. Okay, if we want to, we can compost it. <gasps> Persistent herbicides and compost. It will break down, and we need to do it in small amounts with lots of other material, and it will bind it up, or we need to remove it. And we're going to then success that into a perennial ground cover of some sort, like a Bermuda grass, or like a clover mixture, or eventually, yes, we can even move it into production. We can also then start to plant trees and bushes and, and whatever and go into perennial production there if we want to, Without much problem. I don't know another way without bringing in equipment capable of uprooting all the rhizomes to get this done. I still think it would be better to bring in equipment and tear up as much of it as you can and then only spot apply. But in your, your very entertaining thing, you said, we do not have the budget to fight the war that way. Can't do it. Um, that would be preferable. It would be faster, it would be more effective, it would use a lot less herbicide. But you're going to have to kill this stuff. If you tarp it, it will run past the tarp and up and around it. 
If it's already getting into your walls, you've got to kill it. You've got to kill it. Now, the other thing you could do is once you've done the, the, the initial destruction, if there's not that many places where it's coming back, you could probably tarp those areas and kill it. But boy, it is tough to get rid of once it's established. It really, really is. Um, so you've got to... You gotta get rid of this stuff. I mean, if you just said like it's too much, what I would tell you to do if it was anywhere else, if it wasn't growing into your wall, your house and stuff like that, I would just say cut it back to the clump that you want it to be, okay? C clear the ground and mow around it. Just mow around it. Always mow, always mow. Mow every two weeks around it and eventually it, it'll really kind of stay put and, and your regular mowing schedule will keep it back. That, 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 all these barriers and things, if you leave yourself a pathway for a mower, that's all you need to contain bamboo. Because it'll come up as a little shoot and you cut it down. It comes up a little shoot and you cut it down. Just like it, it's grass, right? So the problem is it ends up being 12 foot high, 40 foot high, whatever grass that you need a machete to get rid of. Okay? So that's what I would do if I were in your situation. Now, when, when people say, oh my God, it's appropriate technology for the situation. It is the least persistent herbicide that will kill bamboo. I don't want to do it, but I also, if I'm a surgeon, don't want to pull out your pancreas, but, you know, well, your pancreas I probably can't pull out, but let's say your gallbladder. I don't want to pull out your gallbladder. Right? But if you have a problem that, that will make your life better, I'll, I'll pull out your gallbladder. I don't want to crack your chest open and, 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 and you know, put new pig arteries in, in replacement of your own that come out of your heart. But if you have congestive, you know, or uh, congested arteries, I might have to do that. So this is a radical move because of a radical situation. If someone knows a better way to do this, I'd love to know. I'd love to know. I don't know of any other way to get this problem solved. And I'll just admit that is my limitation. If you can tell me how to do it and prove to me that it works, I'll do a follow-up segment on it if you gasp because I said the word Roundup in anything approaching a positive way. My problem with Roundup has never been its existence. It's been its application and use. It's ridiculous the way that it's used in modern society. It's like using a drug and pretending that drug is water. That's how we've gotten with Roundup. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Jesse from Vermont. Uh, I was calling about uh, my uh, lawn. I've got a bunch of native strawberries that are just growing throughout certain patches, and they're awfully small. I didn't know if uh, I'd be able to you know, replace those with cultivated varieties of strawberries if you know they'd serve the same purpose um, as far as the ground cover and whatnot and basically no maintenance or... Um, should I just let them continue the native strawberries that are about the size of an eraser on a pencil, uh, continue to do what they're doing and spread? I just, um, you know, the picking is pretty difficult and I'd like to have some larger size berries. So I guess my question is if you were in this situation, uh, what would you do? Thanks. You know, as a kid in Pennsylvania, we were just a little path between the, the two roads in our town. It was the low road and the high road. That's how small this place was. And uh, they split in a V that was about a oh, good half, three-quarters of a mile down the road from my grandparents' place. 
And that V was pretty narrow, and it'd get wider and wider. And right, right about the same spot on it across the thing was a, a road that went up to the mountain that I used to hunt on as a kid, and I used to hike on and, and, and camp on and drink beer and hide from the cops on and all kinds of stuff like that. And until I got my first car, you know, a lot of times I was on foot. And that little path, you know, saved you walking all the way down and all the way back up. It cut, you know, close to a mile off the, the footpath. And uh, on that path, because of the shade and the moisture and the way things seeped in there, there was just lined on both sides little wild strawberries. There's only a short window of the year where they were really there in abundance, and I used to pick those things, and they were so, so good. But you're right, they're small. They're tiny. They never added up to anything. I never really you know, bothered to collect a lot of them. Every once in a while, I might bring a little cup of them home and, and keep them in the refrigerator and savor them for a little while. But usually it was a snack. You know, on, on a walk through, you'd stop, pick some for about, you know, five minutes and, and get a little snack and go on with your day. So they're great, but they're tiny. But they grow in good strawberry habitat. So if you go in and plant domesticated varieties in the same place and give them a little help of establishment in their first year, they'll probably do wonderful. And here's the good news. They probably won't fully and wholly displace the wild ones. And now you can pick a large quantity of domestic strawberries when they're around, and you can pick your small strawberries to go with them because they do have a unique flavor. So I would definitely say, yeah, do it. Now, if you're worried about full displacement, well, then think about how many you plant and where you plant them and things like that. And Also think about doing something like planting a mix of, of, of uh, day new, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, day neutral uh, and June bearing. So June bearing, don't always bear in June, but they all bear at the same time for that particular plant. And there's several different varieties of June bearing where you can stretch out the, the large harvest, and then your ever bearing or day neutrals kind of, as soon as the climate, uh, the temperature's right from the start, they start producing, and they produce all the way till the next frost. But they produce a lot less at a time. So that would spread out your harvest, and it's probably a great place to plant them. So that's that's the last question for today's show. I just want to end with a couple things today. Uh, number one, I'd love to do a show, not next week, but the following week with your questions on guns. Uh, again, I don't think we probably talk enough about guns here, and I'd love to talk about guns with you and answer your questions. It's a huge passion in my life. I grew up from the time I was a little kid, you know, immersed in ballistics and trying to figure out what my first deer rifle was going to be because obviously just using dads wasn't going to be good enough. By the time I got there, that's what I did. Uh, and for, I mean, military experience uh, and, and aftermarket experience and, and what have you, and I love guns. And I love the freedom that firearms represent in America, and I'd love your questions on guns. Uh, tactical, to the, to the hunting, uh, to the backwoods, uh, even black powder. Whatever you want to know, ask it. If I don't know, I'll kick it to someone that does. But try to get me a good 10 questions in the next two weeks, and we'll have uh, the next call-in show on a Thursday all about guns, all about firearms. Uh, the next thing is, again, think about what just happened. Fall started. Fall started. Time's moving forward. And I saw a really interesting meme on Facebook yesterday, I think. And it was like a, 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 a paraphrase of something from like uh, Buddhist or, or something like that. And it was basically you should sit in nature for at least 20 minutes a day. Unless you don't have time. And then you should sit for an hour. 
I, I want you to always try to balance my call to action with a call to take care of yourself, to contemplate deeply things, and to think. I mean, this is part of what I love about permaculture. When you do permaculture right, for every hour of work, there should have been nine hours of thinking. Now, once you get into a maintenance phase and a harvesting phase, that, that kind of changes. When it comes to installation, design, establishment, nine hours of thinking to one hour of working. Because that saves you hours and hours and hours and hours of working for the rest of your life. And we need to be designing our lives with that intention. Can you imagine if we taught children in school how to design their lives? Instead of just training them to find a job, work, take on debt, and service the debt. And guys, that's what school is. No matter what job kids get, that's what we're training them to do. We're training them to get on a job, show up, advance in that job to their, their, their highest point of incompetence. That, that's that the entire system's designed that way. What do you mean highest point of incompetence? Here's what I mean. person does a job, and they eventually find a place that they're good. They're good enough, eventually they get promoted, and then they get promoted, and then they get promoted, and sooner or later they get to a place where they hate their job, and they're not really good at it, but they're just good enough to hold down the fort. And then that that's their glass ceiling, right? And it's not even always incompetence. Sometimes it's incontinuity. So uh, the reason a lot of people stop advancing is it takes so much of their personal life away or their, their private life away, they're not willing to give anymore, and they, 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 they hammer it themselves. Even if they keep saying they would like a, a better job, they, they hamstring themselves, they don't accept promotions, they make sure they don't get promotions, even subconsciously because it's like, I can't give anymore. And that's what we, we train people to do that. We train people, go after the carrot, run as fast as you can to catch it, And someday maybe you will. And you probably catch it just about the time you fall into a hole, they put a stone up, and they bury you. I mean, that's the life of modern Americans. I've seen a cartoon of that, too, and it's true. But what if we taught people to design their lives? So this is, let's sit down and design. Let's map out your life. You know, How long are you going to be really healthy? How can you make that number bigger? How long are you going to be really miserable? How long are you going to be really happy? How do we make the misery less and the happiness more? How are you going to afford to live? Well, I'll get a job. Maybe that's not a good enough answer. Well, I'll get a really good job with a really good education. Well, what's the math work out to? What's the cost of the education for that job, and how long does it take to return it? What are the actual outlooks of that job? Do you really want to do that job just for money? Where do you want to live? How do you want to live? What type of people do you want in your life? Well, this, the education system isn't going to do that shit. So you have to do it for yourself. And if you have kids or other people you influence, you have to teach them how to do it. And the best way we can teach somebody how to do something isn't by learning in a book and then parroting and putting it up on a chalkboard. right? It's by, by living that example, by doing those things so other people can observe it. And that way you have credibility when you say it's possible, when you say it can be done. Those are my final thoughts for you today. Think about that and go out there and kick ass and take names and still make time for your family, for your community, and for your own personal happiness. I think it's really, really important. I'm going to play a song to you, for you today that is really um, a song you shouldn't exemplify. It's the, it's the alternative. It, it's the way people are living. It, it's by Warren Zevon. Warren Zevon, I'm sorry. And um, it is called I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. Um, and that's how a lot of Americans are living, with the concept of I'll rest when I'm dead. And, and that doesn't always mean actually when I'm dead. It means that 
you know, when I when I get to be old as shit and can't work anymore, then I'll stop working. Well, we should be designing ourselves a, a pathway to where our work is meaningful through our entire lives, and our work is, provides for us. Most people spend the best years of their life providing for others, and I don't mean for their family, their kids. I mean for uh, the corporations, for the government, because they they just trade time for money. Well, you always run out of time, and sooner or later you're going to run out of money. Start investing in yourself. Start paying attention to the passing of the seasons, and start claiming your birthright. Your birthright as a human is the freedom to be human. And with that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. So much to I'll sleep with